Well, good morning, Mission View Church. Uh, my name is Bruce. Some of you do not know who I am. I am visiting with you this morning from uh, Maranatha Bible Church. I serve as one of the elders at Maranatha, one of the members of the preaching team there. And uh, I am thrilled to be able to be with you folks this morning to open God's Word together. And uh, we're going to be continuing the series in 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is the passage that we're going to look at in just a minute. Um, just want to have a word of prayer together as we open God's Word and pray that God would just give us wisdom as we open His Word together. Lord, thank You so much for Your love. We thank You so much that we love You only because You first loved us and You have given Yourself for us. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we've already been able to corporately worship together, would be a continuing of worship as we open your word now. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that we might apply the word of God to our lives, so that we might honor you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you've been in a series in the book of First Peter entitled, The Outsiders. And I think that's just such a cool way to look at the book of First Peter, understanding that as believers in Jesus Christ, this is not our home. Uh, there is something more for us as believers. When this life ends, there's something greater that is awaiting us. And so with that in mind, with that understanding in mind, it allows us to tackle the daily struggles and uh, trials that come our way which I think all of us are familiar with in some way, each and every day, it allows us to tackle those struggles and those trials with a different perspective because of what we know awaits. Uh, we know that this life for the believer in Jesus Christ is as bad as it's going to get because we have an eternity to look forward to in worship of our great God and Savior Jesus. And so with that in mind, we look at 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, we're going to read verses 18 through 25. I'll begin with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Incredible portion from God's word that we're going to examine this morning. And in that section of God's word, there are some pretty incredible challenges for us to take on as believers in Jesus Christ. I want to begin right off by looking at verse 18 as the challenge is clearly presented there to us. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Um, you know, we can stop there and, and, and think, okay, that's not 
too bad as we look at the culture and day and age in which this was written. And, and Steve uh, talked a bit about this last week, that that word there that's be subject to is a military term. And it's this understanding that we'll arrange ourselves under a commander to put oneself in an attitude of submission. Now, uh, many of us, the way that we would understand that in this passage today, servants be subject to your masters, we can directly re relate to the work situation we might find ourselves in. Uh, all of us answer to someone. Uh, if you are a business owner, you answer to the government ultimately, uh, as far as with what they have set down as rules and regulations. If you are a manager, uh, you answer to a higher up. If you are an employee, you answer to your boss. And so one direct way that this practically today is speaking to us as believers is that we have to have this understanding that there are those God has put in positions of authority and there are those that have been placed under that authority and we are to be submissive to those authorities. We are to put ourselves in subjection to them. We're to follow them. We're to listen to them. In terms of work, sometimes that's very easy and sometimes that can be very difficult. In terms of relationships and the, the relationships God has placed us in, sometimes that's very easy and sometimes that is very difficult. But here's what's interesting about this passage is that it would be one thing in the challenge here if it stopped there. Servants, be subject to your masters. Listen, if you're a worker, be subject to your manager, be subject to your owner. If you are under someone's authority, that you put yourself in submission to them, that you respect them. But look at what it says. It says, be subject to your masters with all respect. With all respect. And then it goes on to say this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now you read that in its totality, and you, you stop for a minute and think, what in the world is Peter really saying here? That I need to respect and honor my master or my boss or the one that is over me, not only if they are good to me, but even if they're evil to me, if they're unjust to me, if they treat me harshly, if they treat me poorly, that God wants me to, with all respect, be subject to them? Yes. Yes, that's difficult. I mean, that is something that when we stop back and look at that and say, who would do that? Who would do that? Why would anyone do that? Let me give you an example. Some things are very easy to do until they get a little bit more complicated. It makes it a little bit less easy to do. So um, something easy to do might be if you are an employee and your boss, how many of you have ever had a great manager or boss that treated you well and that you just loved to have over. You ever had someone like that? Wasn't that easy then when they would ask you to do something? Okay, yeah, I'll do that. To treat them with respect, to treat them with honor. But how many of you ever had someone over you in some position of authority, whether it was on a, a sporting team or at a, a job or anywhere, where the person who was over you were like, I cannot stand them. And it was self, like it was deserved because the way they treated you was awful. You ever had someone like that, that you were to like daily pray, Lord, I'm praying for them that you would bless them, but please get them out of here uh, because you want someone else. Have you ever had that happen? Uh, let me give you an example. I want everybody to do me a favor. I want you to, uh, everybody at your, at your seat there, pat your head for a second like this. Everybody pat your head, okay? Everybody can do that, right? It's pretty, pretty simple you're doing it. Now, what I want you to do is pat your head and I want you to rub your belly while you're doing that. 
Okay, can everybody do that? Some of you aren't doing it. Some of you are not doing this. Okay, now I want you to reverse it. I want you to rub your head and pat your belly. That's a, <laughs> so everybody's hands are sitting still, right? Every, listen, something that's so simple, pat your head, rub your belly, rub your belly, pat your head. When you add elements to it, it becomes a little bit more complicated to do. That's how I look at this command, this challenge, at the beginning of this passage in 1 Peter 2.18. Honor your boss. Honor those that are over you. Got it. Can do it. Honor your boss and respect your boss. Got it. Can do it. Honor and respect your boss who treats you like garbage. Not so much. Not so much. Anybody else think that would be difficult to do? And, and I'm fortunate. I have a boss that is very good to me at Maranatha. I won't speak ill of my boss, but uh, I enjoy uh, being able to put myself in subjection to and listening to my boss, I have it good, but some of us are not that way with our places of employment. Some of us do not have that same situation with relationships we find ourselves in. But here's what's very interesting about this, is to the world, that command seems ridiculous. To those who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the command to subject ourselves to, to respect, not only those that respect and honor and are good to us, but to respect and honor even those that would hurt us, that would use us, that would treat us poorly, that is completely foreign to the world in which we live. But here's what's interesting. We're not of this world because we're outsiders to this world. This isn't where we belong. And so we do not follow culture. We do not follow the standards of this world. We follow God's word. We follow the standards that God has set for us. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So therefore, we do not follow or live for this world. And so whereas this might seem like a completely foreign concept to so many because this is completely against the grain. It is what God has called us to do. That is the challenge that is set before us. Now, we need to understand that that does not mean that we worship our authorities. That does not mean that whatever our boss or those in positions of authority of us uh, tell us to do, that we do it without question and we follow it blindly. We don't worship these authorities. We do not bow down to these authorities. And ultimately, uh, we do not disregard the word of God if it means having to follow these authorities. God's word takes the precedent here. God's word is the standard. When our culture or our boss or superior or our government tells us to do something, uh, we must live in submission, but not at the point of dishonoring God's word. Not at the point of making them out to be a higher authority than God. And so we have to understand that our first priority is to follow the word of God. Our first priority is God's standards. And what comes with that standard is this initial challenge. Be subject to, place yourself in submission to, honor with respect those that are in positions of authority over you. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And again, I understand for some of us that is very, very difficult because of those that are in positions of authority over us. And yet that's what God desires. That is what the Lord asks. Now, as we move on in the passage, 
we see uh, the motivation for this. Because some of you might be like, well, why in the world would I do that? Why would God ask me to do that? Why would I do that? And, and it's so foreign, it's so ridiculous to think about in the world in which we live. But look at what he says in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Our, our motivation for obedience is our obedience and love for God. Our obedience and love for the Lord. Our motivation in doing something that to the world looks absolutely ridiculous, that no one else would say we should ever do, our motivation to do that is our love and obedience to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See what he says here? He says in this passage that if you suffer for doing things bad or, or wrong or sinning, what good is that? <laughs> you deserve it, is what he's saying in this passage. If you suffer for doing things that are wrong, well, good, because you deserve it. But if when you suffer for doing things that are right, when you suffer for doing good, that's when there is favor in the sight of God. That's when God looks at with pleasure and says, wow, that is my servant who has suffered for doing well. But good is it if you suffer for doing wrong. I have three little girls at home, uh, Ella, Sophia, and Lydia. And Ella's eight, Sophia is five, and Lydia is four. And it is just uh, great times in the Rosa household watching them. And uh, my wife and I sometimes will stand back and listen and watch and just laugh because uh, we're like, where did these kids come from? <laughs> Some of the things they say and that they do. But not long ago, um, we asked the girls to clean their rooms because their rooms were a mess. This is the classic parent asking the kid to clean the room example. And so we asked the girls to clean their rooms. Well, upstairs, we also have a playroom that has... Uh, every toy imaginable, every princess doll, every, I mean, I, I need to get some male influence in my house because I have three girls. I have a female um, dog uh, named Toto, um, which is a very manly dog. I, some of you have heard that story before about Toto. And, and so I need to get some manly influence in my home. But at any rate, in, in the playroom, all of these toys everywhere, it looks like a tornado went through them. Everything's everywhere. So we asked the girls to clean their rooms. And uh, Sophia, our middle one, she, she's very obedient. So the first time we tell her to do something, she goes and does it right away, right away. My oldest daughter, Ella, takes a little bit of, of prying to get moving to do some things. And my youngest, Lydia, she's very lazy. She, she just will lay there. <laughs> and, and like she'll go upstairs to clean and just lay on the floor and just kind of relax until we come up and be like, Lydia, what are you doing? You got to clean your room. So Sophia went up and cleaned her room. And she also went into the playroom and cleaned the playroom without us asking her. And so when I went up there, I actually thought my wife had gone up and cleaned the playroom because it looked so clean. And I almost said something to my wife, like, wow, you did a great job in the playroom because this is how bad it gets. And uh, so I get up there, and, and I find out Sophia cleaned it. And I was like, are you kidding me? She cleaned, we didn't even ask her to do that, and she did it. And, uh, and so Sophia comes out, I said, Sophia, come here. And so Sophia came over to me, and I said, listen, honey, I said, you, you clean the playroom without daddy asking you to, and so I'm going to give you uh, something special. So I, I paid her, gave her some money, $150, something like that. And so I, I, I'm kidding. So I gave her, I gave her uh, some money, and Ella saw me do that. So Ella goes upstairs and cleans her room. <laughs> she comes back downstairs. She's like, I cleaned my room. I go, 
good, because we told you to clean your room. And she was waiting for some, like, payout, right? And I'm like, no, you're not getting anything right now. I said, I told you to do that. You didn't do it. And now that you did what you were supposed to do, you want me to reward you? I'm not rewarding you. That's as crazy as it is as, like, a dad. I kind of look at these things when I look at this passage. That's what I see here. I see that he's saying so often when people suffer wrong or suffer they have questions about why has this happened to me? And if they really look, it's because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you suffer, if you endure hardship, if you endure trials for doing something that is good, that in the sight of God is something that is praiseworthy. That in the sight of God is something that is favorable. That is something God delights in. Because if you suffer for doing evil, what good is that? We deserve it, but if we suffer for doing right, if we suffer for obedience to the Lord, that is pleasing in the sight of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul made a statement, and he said, I'm forgetting all of the things that lay behind, and I am pressing forward, pressing forward in my walk with Christ. And in that passage, Paul talks about how he delights even in suffering because he wants to be made like to Jesus even if it means death. He wants to be like Jesus. Suffering for what? Preaching the gospel. Suffering for obedience to the word of God. And Paul said, I rejoice in that. I delight in that. That's what his desire was. God delights when we do the unexpected, when we do the unprecedented in our society because our heart for obedience to him is greater. And so often, we are so guilty of just blindly following the herd, if you will, in the world in which we live, failing to truly recognize and see what God in his word has specifically called us to do. The challenge is very simple. We are to be subject to those in authority over us. We're to treat them with honor and respect not only to those that treat us well, but to those that would treat us poorly. And the motivation is our obedience and love for our great God. That's what he desires. He goes on to say now in verses 21 to 23, look at how verse 21 starts off. For to this you have been called. You think about that for a minute if we stop right there. We just read something that's kind of like, in some ways troubling, in some ways it's kind of a daunting task that God wants us to do something that in the day and age in which we live is completely a foreign concept. But he says, for this you have been called. You've been called to this. Think of that. So, so here's the, the great encouragement that Peter's giving to the believer today. You've been called to suffer for doing good. Isn't that great? That's what you've been called to do. That's what he's saying here. You think about the passages found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul is instructing Timothy to remember that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's encouraging word for the day is that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Thanks, Paul, right? Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Peter. Great encouragement here. You want me to suffer for doing good? Yes. Yes. Why? Because you're outsiders. Because you don't belong here. Because the standard that you follow is not the standard the world follows. 
Because the one that you are obedient to, they don't know. Because the word of God that is timeless and eternal, that is, that is truth, is of more value and importance than any other standard that's set in this world. For the, to this you have been called, he says. It's what his desire is for us. It's what he wants for us. He goes on, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And look at what it says, leaving you a what? What does it say? An example. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Think of that for a minute. Here's the thing. We have an example to follow in Jesus Christ. He has set the standard. He's completely kept it, and he's left it for us to follow after him. This statement that's found in verse 21, I think, is so incredible. You've been called to this because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example, not just to look at, not just to admire, not just to take in and be like, wow, great example. He did great. But it says to follow in his steps. You and I are to follow in the steps of Jesus. We're to follow his example, his standard. His example is the one we follow. And I think there's great encouragement in that because God is not calling us to do anything that Jesus has not done first for us. He's paved that way. He's set the standard. He's modeled it for us. And there's just something about watching or seeing someone who has done what you are now going to do that gives you some courage, that gives you some insight, that gives you some, some encouragement and camaraderie and kind of like, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I think I can. I think I think I think, right? You, you, you need that. I need that. Let me give you an example. First, when I walk up on stage, the first thing I notice is you must have all tall people who preach here because this, this is tall, right? This is high. Is it, for me, it's tall. Well, I'm not a real tall guy. So when I go to amusement parks, and I love roller coasters, if there's a roller coaster that I, I meet the height requirement that I could ride when I go to the roller coasters, I, I get on there and I, I'm watching. And if it's one that I've never ridden before, I watch to see who all goes on the roller coaster and their reaction when they get off the roller coaster. And what I try to do is target young kids. And so if I'm in line for like this big roller coaster, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't, I'm afraid of heights. I'm scared of heights. But at the same time, I love roller coasters. It's a really weird dichotomy. I, I, something great. And so I'm in, I'm in line, and I'm waiting, and I'm like still deciding, should I ride it? Shouldn't I ride it? Should I ride it? Shouldn't I ride it? And I try to find the youngest kid that's riding that ride and be like, if he can do it, I can do it. Right? I, that's what I'm trying to think. And the troubling thing is he's like eight, and he's taller than I am. And I'm like, well... He's got a little bit of height on it. So I, I watched that. But if he goes on the roller coaster and he gets that done, and first of all, he's alive when he gets off the roller coaster, and he seems like, yeah, like I'm going to go do it again. I'm like, all right, I got to be brave. I got to be brave because if he can do it, I can do it. Have you ever had that happen before where you're like watching? Anybody else do that where you're like, oh, I'm not sure, and you watch, and if you see a young kid doesn't, you're like, okay, he can do it, I can do it. Anybody else? Make me feel good here. Come on. Thank you. And so I watch it. And so then when I get onto the roller coaster, as I'm going up the first hill, which is always very dramatic because it feels like it goes on forever. And you're driving up there and, and, and driving up there. You're going up the roller coaster. As you're sitting in the seat, and I'm like, everybody's like has their hands in the air. I'm looking around. I'm like, ah, oh, I put my hands up in the air while we're going up the hill. As soon as we round that hill, I am holding on. 
for dear life because by that point in time, nobody notices because they're all just crazy anyhow. And so like uh, everybody's going up there. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be great. And I hold on. And what I do is when I'm starting to round the hill, I already let the yell to start to come out before you start going down the hill because if you wait, you can't get it out. And so if you wait, you're kind of like, ah, 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 you can't do it. So I, it's weird, but when we're going over the hill, you'll hear someone be like, ah, like I'm starting already. That's me if you hear that, all right? So, but there's something about seeing someone do something that you're kind of afraid, you're kind of intimidated to do, that when you see they've done it, it makes it a little bit better. It makes it a little bit more doable. I think that's what Peter is saying here about Jesus. Because the task that he has just laid out for the believer to follow is a very difficult, intimidating task. It's a very difficult and intimidating challenge to follow. Do good to those that would hurt you and hate you and use you. Honor with all honor and respect, those that are in authority over you, even to the ones who are not good and gentle? That's intimidating. That's difficult. But he says, this is what you have been called to. Because Jesus Christ has himself suffered to an even greater extent for you. And he has set the example that we should follow in his steps. There's no greater person to follow in their steps than Jesus. There's no greater example to follow than Jesus. In essence, what Peter is saying here is that you and I have been called to be like Jesus, to follow in his steps, to do what he does, to do what he does. It's incredible. It's incredible to think of this. If you look at the end of verse 23, it says, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of the suffering and pain, it says that he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Incredible statement that's there that sometimes is missed. In the midst of all that Jesus was enduring and he was doing and he was suffering, he was entrusting his very self to God, to the Father, to the one who ultimately will judge justly because he cared for him. You know, when, you, when you read Philippians chapter 2, Paul says something very similar when he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in form God, having equality with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or, or to be clung to or to hold on to, but he made himself of no reputation, it says. He made himself of no reputation. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we read that passage about the emptying himself, about the kenosis of Christ, which is Christ emptying himself of that position and authority as God with the Father. And sometimes it's very difficult to grasp what exactly Jesus did, but he did that ultimately to suffer and pay for our sin, the penalty for our sin. But we've been in a series uh, in the book of Revelation, 
And as I was thinking about the example Christ has set and thinking about what Christ did and thinking about Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, Christ emptying himself, something struck me as amazing because I've always had a difficult time grasping and understanding what does it mean for Jesus truly to empty himself, for Jesus to make himself of no reputation. What does that mean? I want to read to you in, in Revelation chapter 1, just a section starting at verse 9. John is, is having this vision. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation... And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is suffering because he is being obedient to Christ. He's on an island called Patmos. He's exiled because he was preaching the gospel, because he was a follower of Jesus. And here John is there, and he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. He goes on now in verse 12. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, Jesus here, this is Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now listen to the description of Jesus in glory in heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Listen to what it says about him. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The picture that John gets of Jesus in heaven... In glory, King of kings, Lord of lords, all power and authority, everyone will worship him, will bow down to him. He sees this picture, and he can't describe accurately what he sees, so he uses the word like over and over again here. He was like, he was like, he was like, he was like. Words cannot do justice to this picture of Jesus that John is seeing in heaven. The glorified Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. And look at what it says, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is what I realized. John turns and he sees a picture of Jesus. He sees one like the Son of Man. Is Jesus there? And he describes him. And the only response that John can give to this picture of Jesus in heaven, in glory, is he says he sees him and he falls at his feet like a dead man. And I think so often we think about when we see Jesus, we're going to, oh, Jesus, we're going to bow down. Oh, he's, he's amazing. We're going to worship him. You know what John said? John said, I saw Jesus, and he was like, saw Jesus, he was just like, you know, just dead. And he just lay. That's, that's it. He couldn't do anything. A dead man, he said. You want to talk about the terror of the Lord. You want to talk about the respect and power and and the amazing presence of Jesus that it would cause a grown man who suffered much to respond the only way he possibly could in that moment was to just collapse as a dead man and just lay there. How many of you have ever heard someone say that when you see a bear, you don't run, you play dead? Have you ever heard someone say that? You only get one chance at that if it's not correct, if you play dead, all right? But here's what I find interesting. What is more terrible? What causes more fear than a grizzly bear charging at, which I don't know how often this happens, but there's stories, a grizzly bear charging at you, wanting to eat you. Is there anything that could be more, like, Ah, what do you do? 
And people say, listen, when that happens, don't try to climb a tree, don't run, play dead. I'm running if that happens, and I'm not, he's going to catch me, all right? But I'm at least making an effort. But here's the thing I found interesting about that, is that there's a choice there. You can run, you can jump, you can hide, you can sing, you can do whatever you want to do when you see the grizzly bear coming at you. You got to react somehow. With Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, in his presence, John could not think, run, bow, worship. He fell as though dead because of what he saw. Now take that Jesus and insert him into Philippians chapter 2. When Jesus who in his full glory causes man to fall at his feet as though dead, empties himself to the point of man now spitting on him, pulling out his beard, mocking him, and crucifying him. That's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. He became of no reputation. That's the example he set for us. And that is what Peter says we are to follow in his steps. We're to be like him. Incredible example. There's no one greater. There's no one more worthy than him. He goes on in verses 24 and 25 to give a reminder. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the reminder that he gives to us. Jesus bore your sin and my sin. He suffered unjustly for not any wrong that he committed, but rather what we committed. He was put to death. He suffered and was beaten to the point where you couldn't even recognize that he was a man, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, for our sins. The reminder and this encouragement that he gives us as we, as we look at the closing of this section is that Christ bore our sins. He suffered for us. He set that example. Why? So that we may live a happy-go-lucky life. No. So that by all the people of the earth may love us. No. So that we can live a carefree and pain-free life. No. So that we may eat, drink, and be merry. No. No. What does he say? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He wants us to live to righteousness. And living to righteousness means doing things that the world will not do. It means modeling our lives after someone the world will not model their life after. It means holding as a standard the word of God that others will not hold. It means honoring and submitting to leaders, even that mistreat us and that would cause ill upon us because we want to live to righteousness. We want to live for Christ. He goes on to say, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
What incredible encouragement that verse is as this chapter closes, that he is our shepherd, he is the overseer of our soul. No one greater to fill that role in our lives. No one greater. The one who has all control and all power and all authority, who at any time he wants to can intervene, has complete control over my life. He's my overseer. He is my shepherd. And we are called, even as Jesus did, to entrust our lives to the one who cares for us, even if that means suffering, even if that means enduring hardship. Quickly, let me just give five points to consider. I'm not expounding on these, so don't worry. Number one, our submission to man is founded in our submission to God. Our submission to man is founded in our submission to God. If we are going to submit to, respect, and honor those in authority over us, whether they treat us right, wrong, indifferent, whatever, it's going to be based upon our submission to God. Two, if we truly trust the Lord, we will do good even when it hurts. If we truly trust the Lord, we will do good even when it hurts. Number three, suffering for doing good is favorable in God's sight. For to this you have been called, he said. To live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Suffering for doing good is favorable in God's sight. Number four, Christ is our example. We follow him. And along with that, number five, Christ is our overseer. He's our example. We follow him. He is our overseer. I think we see all of those points in this passage. All of those to consider this morning. Are these things true of our lives? Do we follow in the steps of Jesus? And then quickly, let me give you some practical applications. Number one, submit to God's word in all areas of our lives. We need to submit to God's word in all areas of our lives. There are probably areas of your life and my life today that if we're honest, we know what God's word says we need to do but we are very hesitant to do it. We must submit our lives to God's word. Number two, trust God at his word in all circumstances. It is so easy to trust God at his word when everything is good. It is so easy to trust God at his word when everything is going the way we want it to go. It's easy to trust God at his word when, when we're living rightly and we're not suffering for it. It's a little bit more difficult, isn't it, to trust God at his word in all circumstances, in all situations, but that's what his desire for us would be. Number three, respect and do good to those who are in authority over us. Practically speaking, uh, this week at work, you can be respectful and do good to your boss, even if he or she is undeserving of it. You want to talk about messing someone's day up, do good to someone who thinks you hate them. <laughs> or who thinks you have every reason to hate them. We can respect and we can honor them in a way that's pleasing to God. Number four, follow the example of Christ. This is very broad, but yet very specific, isn't it? Follow the example of Christ. He's given us so many things in his word to follow and to, sh to see how he handled so many different situations. Why not follow in his steps? No one better to follow in his steps than in Christ's steps. And then finally, number five here, remember that he cares for us. He cares for you. 
You may be here today and say, no one cares about me. It's a lie. You may be here today and say, no one really cares what I'm going through. That's a lie. You may be here and say, no one understands, no one knows, no one has any idea what I've endured this past week. That's a lie. You may be here saying, you know what, no one's ever suffered like I've suffered. That's a lie. Remember that Jesus cares for you, cares for me. He knows us. The very hairs of our head are numbered, he says. For some of us, we think that's not that big of a task. For other people, it is. The hairs of our head are numbered. He knows every single thing about us. He knows us intimately, and he cares for you as his child. Nothing that you or I will do this week as a child of God will be done on our own. There's no challenge, no trial, no persecution or suffering that you and I will face this week alone because he has promised to be with us and we follow him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for the example that Jesus has set for us. Lord, truly, you have called us to be outsiders in the world in which we live. Following the word of God and living obediently to the word of God is not something that is looked on with very much favor in the day and age in which we live. And yet, Lord, we first want to be submissive to you and not to the world. We want to follow the example Christ has set for us. We pray that you would give us the strength to do that. Give us the wisdom to live lives pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name.